Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Dee Smith, the executive director of the NFL Players Association. Welcome, Dee. Hey, how are you? And thanks for having me. It is great to have you. I should say that that Dee Smith uh, is also was a trial lawyer. He previously served as counsel to then Deputy Attorney General Eric Holder in the U.S. Department of Justice under the Obama administration. We'll talk about that a little bit, but let's talk about football. How's the season going so far from the players' perspective? Uh, really good. Um, you know, I'm proud of our guys. I'm, I'm, I'm proud of not only um, where we are in week two and in, in the middle of a, or, you know, somewhere in the middle of a pandemic, but I'm really proud of our leadership. Uh, we're the only reason that, that we are here is our, our player leaders, our staff at the NFLPA um, back in uh, late March uh, took an approach that while it may not uh, while we may not be able to get this football season off the ground, the only way to look at this pandemic and, and the work that our players do is to try to come up with a framework where um, a safe and a healthiest season was possible. We, we certainly didn't know whether we would get there, but taking that view and, and becoming rather zero sum about what it was going to take uh, in order to engage in the business of football um, I'm happy about where we are. I mean, I, I think the only, um, you know, sad part of this is I, I am utterly convinced um, that if the country had the same leadership um, and vision and diligence uh, of the people in football, our country would be back to work now. And and that's, um, while I'm happy about football, I'm um uh, borderline angry about where we are in the country. So, because I, I think what we found out was um, with a tremendous amount of diligence um, and adherence to science and dedication to a plan, um, you can actually get a work um, back in the United States, even if that work is work that theoretically probably posed the greatest risk of transmission of this virus. Right. Um, and, and we've been able to do it and to know that the country isn't there yet is um, an embarrassment. Well, uh, just to put it in a frame. You know, of course, we're all very <laughs> concerned. I, I, you know, the NFL is doing a pretty good job. I mean, when you talk about various jobs, most jobs don't have people uh, having to, you know, tackle each other. Uh, and the NFL is making it work. I know that uh, you're going around to the various teams. You, you, you let us know you're, you're calling us from Cincinnati today. Um, what are you hearing from the players about any concerns that they have? Not really a lot of concerns. I mean, we, we look at a lot of issues here. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm a data guy, so... Uh, to me, it's all about how you um, ensure that you're gathering the right amounts um, or right types of data, um, that you're analyzing it the right way, and that you're making data-driven decisions as opposed to 
um, you know, sort of analytical, I'm sorry, anecdotal or, or shoot from the hip decisions. Uh, we've had a lot of high profile injuries um, at the beginning of the season. Um, we really look at injuries. We never look at injuries in isolation. We look at injuries um, along a, a four-year, five-year trend. So we're looking at that. Um, frankly, the compliance by some coaches to the COVID co- uh, guidelines um, has been abysmal. Um, and I, I did uh, and do applaud the league for finding uh, coaches who um, um, you know, deliberately disobeyed the COVID protocols. Um, they have to be smarter. Um, they're not above the protocols. Um, it's not like they don't know what the rules are when they make decisions that they're going to know it and they um, uh, violate the rules. They're putting our players at risk. Um, and we all know that if a player violated the rules, they'd get fined in a nanosecond. So I'm glad that the league has taken this as seriously as uh, the union. Um, but other than that, I, I think our players are thrilled to be playing um, and and overall um, happy with the frame of, of what the NFL looks like this year. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the NFL players' involvement in some of the racial and social justice issues uh, that are so prevalent today. You know, a few years back, there was great controversy when Colin Kaepernick uh, took a knee during the national anthem. Uh, this year, we've seen, you know, the entire Miami Dolphins team remain in the locker room uh, during the national anthem. What kind of change in opinions uh, have you seen within the players and the players association regarding these protests? Um, you know, I, I think, honestly, the great thing is I haven't seen a change in opinion. Um, our players were there four and five years ago. Uh, And I'm proud of the fact that we um, were on the right side of history then, and we're on the right side of history now. Uh, The fact that the league has come uh, to to embrace our position or the fact that, um, you know, many of our sponsors and a lot of our partners have frankly uh, had to uh, deal with this or embrace this or or get behind this at, at best is is wonderful. But um, you know, bravery is um, should never be measured in hindsight. I mean, all of us want our sons and our daughters, um, our leaders, to take brave stands, not. Uh, so that history will judge them well. Um, But we want them to make brave stands because it's right at the time. And, and you and I are of a enough of a vintage um, and certainly have uh, enough of experience in, in the law where, um, you know, we know that we are all trained as, as law school students to read um, and understand and unpack uh, and unpack, you know, significant and, and historical precedents. But, you know, to me, the beauty of all of those things is that by the time you and I read about, you know, XYZ Supreme Court case, it always started with someone taking some brave stand, typically years before they were vindicated um, by the court system. You know, it took brave lawyers, brave plaintiffs, and, and, and brave humans 
to take stands, not knowing how the story was going to turn out. And I think sometimes we get caught up with the reality that we always tell our stories somewhat backwards. Um, We sometimes fail to embrace the courage and real leadership that it takes in order to take a stand before someone is willing to render a judgment or a vindication or an absolute um, um, understanding of uh, or appreciation of what you've done. So, um, I, look, I was thrilled when when Roger came out and, and said what he said, but let's not forget that our players, you know, were coming out of the locker room with their hands up um, after Tamir Rice in in St. Louis. And um, and they were making stands about police brutality and police um, accountability in in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, you know, heck, Dave Megacy was a former um, NFL player who refused to um, salute the flag in protest to the Vietnam War. <laughs> so, you know, we've always had players and, and frankly athletes who've taken brave stands. I, I, I dig the fact of where we are now, um, but I absolutely love the fact that they took those stands before um, it might have been the most popular thing in the world. Today, are you are, are you seeing any pushback from the NFL owners on players uh protesting in various forms uh, as part of the game? Um, I'm not because, you know, that would probably devolve into a, um, let's just say, tough conversation. So um, if the owners were pushing back on our players, they're they're generally a little smarter um, than saying it to me. Um, it would get back to you, though, right? If I mean, if the, if the owners were putting pressure on the players and your conversations would. with them, you'd hear about it. It would, and and we, um, you know, this is we don't make any apologies for for when we have to uh, to be a sharp elbowed, um, no holes barred union. Um, I, I don't apologize that for all at all. I mean, I, I know it at times can rub people um, the wrong way, but you know, when I was a homicide prosecutor, nobody minded me being tough in a courtroom. Right. It's weird that all of a sudden you get a job, you know, being the head of a union and you're tough on owners being accountable to our players. And somehow you get you get charged with trying to ruin football. Um, I don't lose a lot of sleep over it. I know that probably comes as a shock. But, um, well, you're an advocate for your constituency and that's the players. It's what we do. They love football. It's what we do. Let me ask you this. You know, we've had uh, players in the NBA and Major League Baseball hold one-day wildcat strikes to to protest and to raise awareness of police killings and racial injustice. Uh, Might we see something similar in the NFL? You know, I I think what you've seen in the NFL is um, literally teams by teams or players by players making their own Um, individual and and organic and authentic ways in which that they wanted to deal with this. And I love that um, because it, it, going back to what we talked about earlier, I think, um, I think that there's certainly ways in which we can all join in on certain protests. Um, But I never wanted our players to be bandwagon players. 
Um, I want them to make real decisions about how they think their acts are going to impact the system, knowing what the potential consequences are, um, and then making their own decisions. So, um, you know, th- that's kind of the way that I leave it. And, um, and I, I like the fact that that's what we've seen. You know, one of the things that uh, the NBA uh, got out of uh, their uh, wildcat strike was a commitment from the NBA and, and some of the, the owners that uh, uh, NBA arenas would be used as polling locations uh, in November. Uh, is there any talk of using NFL stadiums uh, for polling locations? Yeah, actually, at the request of the union um, back when we were um doing the, the deal for COVID, uh, the union recommended to the league that its stadiums be used as polling places. And my understanding right now is, while that's up to every state uh, secretary, I think we're up to six or eight NFL stadiums that are going to be used as polling places. And, and moreover, um, the union requested that all NFL pl- players be off completely on election day, um, not only to vote, but I want our guys to be at the polls. And I want our guys who are going to be poll watchers or people who um, are going to help people register and, and secure their vote. I, I didn't want our guys just focusing on um, their civic duty, but by giving them the entire day off, I wanted our guys to be able to um, protect their community by protecting our right to vote, which um, is without a doubt under assault. Yeah, well, you know, let's talk about that a little bit. What can uh, the NFL Players Association and NFL players do uh, to address uh, the assaults that you've raised? Yeah, well, you know, first, um, I insist on telling our guys whether they want to hear it or not. And and I'm kind of used to that because I have kids, Um, um, you know, making them aware that they don't live in a bubble about what's happening in their community, uh, in their country, and in their world. Uh, and so it really has to start there. Um, all of these things that are, are outgrowths of that. The polling places at the stadium, having the day off, our players, uh, if they wish to be involved in, um, in voter protection, voter registration drives, um, we've seen that. Um, you know, we don't take political positions on on national elections, um, but we've had plenty of players who have expressed who they were going to vote for and and why. And I I love that. But but what I do and will say, and, and I said it back in in 2017 or 16, while we may not take positions on presidential elections, it doesn't mean that. Um, we can ignore things that are happening um, or could potentially happen given legislation that not only negatively affect NFL players, but also negatively affect Americans. Every one of our NFL players will leave this job with pre-existing conditions. And, And I don't care whether you are a rookie in this league or a 10-year veteran in this league, it is not a question of lifetime healthcare. It is not a question of um, who pays for the healthcare. The reality is when you leave 
an employer and you have a pre-existing condition, there will be some time in your life where you might have to transfer to um, a new level or a new insurance company. And if that pre-existing condition becomes a barrier to your ability to get health insurance, that, as we know, affects every American. But there are few jobs in the world where the injury rate is 100%. And we're one of them. So I ask our players, you know, I never, you know, endorse candidates in front of our players, but I sure as heck um, don't shy away from making them aware of their unique status as workers in America and how what they do can be substantially impacted by the legislation or the laws that somebody else is passing. Well, um, how about on a podcast? Do you want to endorse anybody on a, on a podcast? <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 stick to, I stick to my job as a union leader. I get it. I love it. Um, but, um, you know, I've, I've been in this for a long time. I, I want our players to make an informed decision, and, and they should do so. Um, not so much around slogans, uh, but but hopefully so much around what the issues are, what they mean, and how they'll affect their families and, and the families next door to them. All right. Well, let's talk about the, the NFL family of players. Uh, you've just had a new collective bargaining agreement in March of this year. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, it was, uh, you know, obviously going to uh, provide some security for uh, another decade. Yep. Um, but it was approved by a very narrow margin. Let me ask you, um, going forward, uh, what would the players like to see from the NFL and the owners? <laughs> Uh, look, I, I, I think that um, anytime our men um, engage in collective bargaining um, and go toe-to-toe with the league and end up with a um, long-term agreement that protects their health care, protects their pensions, um, reduces their overall work, gives us a higher share of revenue, takes care of our former players and secures us against um, potential economic impacts over a long period of time, that's a win for our players. Um, you know, to, to turn it around, I, I, if I had to ask your question um, with us not having a collective bargaining agreement this year, as we enter, this will be the last year of our deal. Um, I think if we didn't have a deal and this was the last year of our collective bargaining agreement and you asked me what would our players want going forward, I think overwhelmingly most of them would say we want to know that we're going to be playing football and getting paid a fair wage. And for a lot of people in America right now um, who are out of work or the number of businesses that we've seen negatively impacted by um, this virus and, and our country's unfortunate response to this virus, um, can you imagine workers um, at meatpacking companies or 
um, clothing companies or textile companies or uh, restaurants saying that next year they want a higher wage and more health care and a larger pension. That's not first and foremost on their minds right now. Right. The people who don't have long-term deals right now, the only thing they're really hoping for is a job. Right. And as you, as you mentioned, and as we all know, uh, the, you know, the, the professional life of an NFL player is uh, limited because of the toll that the, the game takes on, on them. Uh, certainly the collective bargaining agreement that you've uh, uh, agreed to now, it adds an extra game, but it also proportionally adds uh, more money for the players, which uh, seems to be what they were uh, what they were looking for. Uh, you mentioned a couple of times the, the failure of uh, our national response to uh, this pandemic. Uh, what do you think we, we should have done that we haven't done? Uh, you know, from our, from our leadership? Yeah. Um, the, the first thing I, I would have to say is I, I can just only juxtapose it with what we did. Um, we left our rep meeting, I think, on March, somewhere between March 8th, 9th, 10th, something like that. Um, the, the CBA was ratified um, that Saturday, early Sunday. Um, I, I received John Barry's book on the 1918 influenza virus um, in the mail on um, that Tuesday. I finished the book Wednesday night. On Thursday morning, I was terrified and on Friday morning, um, I retained the best experts in the country to come up with a plan, uh, or at least to look at a plan of how could we possibly conduct our work in the environment of a global pandemic. I think that if our overall national leadership had done half of that, we would all be back to work now. Yeah, I don't think they did any of that. Um, I mean, what you've just pointed out, you acknowledged there was a problem. Uh, you read a book about it, uh, which I don't think uh, our national leadership has done. And uh, you listened to the advice of experts uh, who have spent their lives studying this. And you applied that to the NFL where people are in you know, constant contact with each other. That's the nature of the game. And you've had success. It's not complicated. It's just not. And, and taking a, you know, there's so many things in, in John Barry's book, but when he sums up the, the nation's response to the uh, influenza virus, what he says in that book turned out to be unfortunately prophetic. Tell the truth. Find out the truth, tell the truth, and then plan accordingly. And, and that's what we did. So simple things like, um, you know, if, if for us, th- this actually, this works. Um, mass testing works. Contact tracing works. Social distancing works. Um, isolation and mitigation and quarantine works. And so in a business um, and when I got our experts together, the, one of the first things they said to me was, you know, Dee, I'm sure you are aware of this, but if there were a sport that were, was created 
to effectively transmit this virus. They would call it NFL football. Right. And, and yet we're into week two. Um, I think we have had um, out of roughly 2,300 players and probably another three or four, three, uh, 3,500 staff. Um, we've had less than f- three positive tests, four positive tests over the last two weeks. Um, and we've been able to pull off um, games on Sunday, <laughs> Monday, and Thursday and safely transport half of those um, members back safely home um, and getting them back to work the next day. How often are the players tested? Every day. Okay. And with everyday testing, you're saying we've, we've had, like you said, three or four In total positives? Think about that. Right. So the, the way it works is we test every day. Um, and, and certainly we're not saying that everybody has to get tested every day. But the core philosophy of our plan is identify where the virus is testing. If you discern where the virus is, be in a position to act immediately. So we have contact tracing that's both technology-based and human-based. If someone tests positive, we immediately isolate, segregate, quarantine those individuals. Um, And then they're tested and they're not reinserted back into the overall population until they've had enough negative tests over enough um, over enough days. And, and so, yes, we had higher concentrations of, of positive tests when we started training camp, but because we're able to quickly identify where the virus is and simply snuff it out with um, ending transmission, we win. But if you decide for whatever reason that this virus is going to magically go away and it doesn't really hurt people. And all you have to do is take some stupid drug um, that's not tested. And, and more importantly, if you fail to tell people the truth, two things happen. One, you, you certainly lose the ability to scientifically and effectively manage um, one of the most um, virulent strains of a, of a coronavirus of all time. But worse yet, the lack of leadership instills in people an utter disregard for the simple things that we need to keep our country safe and to get us back to work. And and I look, I, I deal with a group of people, and uh, I'm always fond of saying in the NFL, we've got roughly you know, 2,000 players every year, um, we hover somewhere between 4,000 and 6,000 opinions among those 2,000 players every day. Right. And I dig it. I get it. I absolutely love it. But everybody is certainly entitled to their own opinion. No one is entitled to their own facts. And so what we've decided to do is we'll hear your opinion, but we're only going to act on the facts. And, and I think that if our country would have spent more time um, on the facts and less time on the opinion. Um, I know we would have less than 200,000 people that we've said goodbye to. And our country would be back to work where we sorely need to be back to work. Right. Absolutely. Now, um, 
prior to your your job um, uh, with the NFL Players Association, as I said, you worked with Eric Holder in the Department of Justice under President Obama. What are your thoughts on how uh, Bill Barr is running the Department of Justice these days? Um, you know, I can say as a former DOJ alum, um, and by the way, um, my commission as an assistant United States attorney that's on my wall at home for some reason um, was signed by a guy named Bill Barr. Okay. Um, so I was actually hired in a Republican administration. Um, he's run the department into the ground. And, and while I will always believe for a number of reasons um, that, that my job as an assistant U.S. attorney um, working for the Department of Justice is still today probably the best job that I will ever have. Um, I think um, that what he has done and what he has come to represent um, as the attorney general um, is an extremely poor reflection on the ideals of the department. Um, and certainly contrary uh, to the mission of justice that not only all of us as attorneys who work in the federal system would want to see, but what every attorney who truly believes um, in the rule of law and the goal to seek justice um, in the country. And, and I, I, I have um, a complete lack of um, anything that I can say about his leadership that, that could approach me being gracious. Um, so, um, and, and let me ask you this then, you know, since you, you spent your, uh, a good part of your career in the justice, justice department, working under the Republican and president, uh, and democratic presidents, what, what specifically are you seeing now that Barr is doing that is contrary to the ideals that, uh, you've been familiar with uh, when you worked at the department of justice? Yeah, my, I was hired by uh, um, my United States attorney when, when I got hired was one of the best persons I ever worked for in my life named Jay Stevens. Um, Jay was certainly, um, and it was at a time in Washington, D.C., my hometown, um, where at least a couple of those years we were the murder capital in D.C. So this has nothing to do with law and order. Um, there was no more of a law and order prosecutor than me. Um, I I understand and appreciate the role of the police and, and being peace officers and, and protecting us, um, in our community. I, I, I spent almost every other Monday in the morgue, um, in DC covering, um, the, the examinations that would ultimately be. Um, handled by myself and other prosecutors. So there is no Pollyanna-ish view of what um, a fair um, law enforcement officer has to do in order to, to protect and to serve. Um, 
when you turn a blind eye, however, um, to accountability, when you stand by while peaceful protesters were kneeling and allowed a group of police officers to overrun them on our nation's capital. Um, This year, I have seen things on TV that I thought I would never see in my life. And, And I think that you either, as the titular head of something called the Department of Justice, you either make a decision that you are going to represent um, and remind and enforce um, the ethics of our country of us not tolerating those things, or you turn a blind eye to it. And and when you turn a but but when you do turn a blind eye to it, you you are obviously making a decision that you are going to serve another master. But worse yet, um, you've abdicated that really important role um, that falls somewhere between leadership and inspiration about what we should all be aspiring to when we think of the word justice. And I don't know in my lifetime if I've ever seen an attorney general, um, I mean, the only other one that possibly comes close is Ed Meese, but I don't think that even he um, demonstrated such a um, callous disregard of an opportunity to affirm justice than, than, than this attorney general. Now, um, what do you say to the players? I mean, they know you worked in the Department of Justice, and they say, "D, what is going on here? How do you explain this? What do you tell the What do you tell the players, and what are their concerns that they they need explanation from you for?" You know, I'm uh, I'm 56 years old, so um, you know, two things happen when you're in front of players and you're 56 years old. First, the first question is, "How are you walking upright?" That's their, their, their first question. Um, you know, I, I spend more of my time um, on issues like that of teaching. Um, you know, when, you know, I, I think that for generations of players now, they only know, they only know a D Smith who's had this job. And, and I, you know, I just entered the year where I've had this job, I think longer than either being a prosecutor or being a, a, a partner in private practice. So, um, but, you know, when I teach them about the fact that, yes, I was a homicide prosecutor, um, and yes, I loved it, um, and, and being in a role to try to deliver some small square of justice um, was one of the best things I've ever done in my life. But that also meant that my job um, meant that I worked side by side with some of the best law enforcement officers that I've ever met. Um, I probably still am a member of the local FOP lodge in, in DC. I joined when I was a second year prosecutor. Um, that DC lodge is named after the first African American um, police officer who died in the line of duty in DC. So, you know, when I talk to our players about this, it, it, it is primarily intended 
to simply dispel with this false binary choice that you are either pro-law enforcement or anti-law enforcement or, um, you know, that Black Lives Matter is anti-law enforcement. Um, I believe Black Lives Matter and many of my best friends to this day are law enforcement officers. So I certainly understand the, um, the, the, the false logic that you hear from others that try to turn this into a, you know, pro-country, anti-country, pro-law enforcement, anti-law enforcement um, argument. Um, that's simply not true. What I, what I try to teach them is um, I'm really for accountability. Um, am I nervous at times when my son goes out in the evening to drive? Yes. Have I been pulled over before, I think, because of the color of my skin and put on a car hood in the pouring rain? Um, yes. Was it a lawful stop? No. I happened to be an assistant U.S. attorney at the time, and that might have kept me from being in the back of a squad car. But did I come out of that experience either loving police officers more or hating them more? No. I don't like the ones who aren't accountable. I love and appreciate the ones who believe that their jobs as peace officers um, is to keep us safe. And so, um, you know, when I talk to players about that, what I I just try to do is I I know that many of them are angry um, and they should be. Um, I try to teach uh, about my own experience, uh, but most importantly, how to not only um, be righteously angry, but to really embrace, um, you know, that 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 adage about. And I do believe that the, the moral arc of this country bends towards justice, but to remind them that it doesn't bend on its own. Um, our job, our mission um, is, is to apply pressure to that moral arc, right? Right. And, and whether it's taking a knee or, or using your voice or um, marching on the streets or protesting or voting or working for a candidate, um, all of those things are things that um, we have to do if we want to bend the moral arc towards justice. Well, D. Smith, that's a great message and well said. I want to thank you, D, for your service to our country. Thank you. And I want to thank you for your time here and sharing your thoughts on Miranda warnings. These are all obviously very important and serious topics. We have something of a lighthearted feature called Music Book or Movie. Oh, here with us, what's helping get you through quarantine? Um, I'm, I'm uh, finishing up... Um uh, the gentleman in Moscow, which I, I just love. Uh, about Trump? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> good try, though. Good try. Uh, and uh, and then the last, um, you know, I went back and and actually read after we were going through the the yet another you know COVID deal with the league. Um, I reread Taylor's part of the waters because I. Um, I wanted to kind of go back to a point in American history 
where it was full of strife and, and a lot of people didn't know how the story was going to end in, in order to try to um, grind, you know, ground myself in sort of that this is what it's going to take day to day to day to day if we truly want to achieve change in our country. So, um, Gentleman of Moscow is, is just a wonderful novel and, and Burning the Waters by Taylor Branch is still uh, probably the best nonfiction book I've ever read in my life. Great. Well, thank you very much, D. Smith, Executive Director of the NFL Players Association. Thank you for, for your service. Thank you for your time here on Miranda Warnings. Thanks for having me. And uh, to all the lawyers out there, um, let's keep fighting for justice. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISPA podcast, available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.